Ticket to Ride, the market record highway. Tell all your friends they can go my way. Stocks are streaking, earnings are peaking. There's a coin called Shibu that's flying, bleeping high. Pierce the sky, FOMO everywhere. Me, oh my, what a time to taper. That'll be a caper. If the Fed can unwind its balance sheet without making a complete mess of the situation. Inflation nation, consumer sentiment keeps dropping, yet markets keep topping. Record highs, so much excess. We'll slow it down around the turn on the Investopedia Express. Welcome aboard, one and all, and we are charging into November at record highs for U.S. equity markets, and this train shows no signs of slowing down. Mostly strong quarterly earnings reports from U.S. companies are priming the pump. Even when the news is not so good, investors seem willing to shake it off. Last week, shares of Amazon fell more than 2% after the e-commerce giant badly missed revenue and earnings expectations for the third quarter. Shares of Apple fell 1.8% after its results fell way short of expectations amid larger-than-expected supply constraints on iPhones, iPads, and Macs. It was the first time Apple's revenues have missed Wall Street's estimates since May 2017. When those giants fall, they usually take the whole market down with them, but not these days, especially when there's some other market cap whales in the pool. Shares of Microsoft jumped 2.2% last week as it became the largest company in the world by market capitalization, streaking past Apple to take that throne. We're good streaking! Not that kind of streaking, Will. Put some clothes on. And then there's Tesla. The OG EV maker crossed $1 trillion in market value last Monday, joining a select group of companies after its stock price more than doubled this past year on surging vehicle sales and rising profits. A little help from Hertz helped push Tesla into the trillion-dollar galaxy as the rental car company ordered 100,000 Teslas for its rental car fleet to be delivered next year. It took less than two years for Tesla's market value to grow from $100 billion to $1 trillion. It took Amazon more than eight years to cover that ground. Tesla joins Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Microsoft in the trillion-dollar market club here in the U.S. Outside the U.S., PetroChina and Saudi Aramco wear that belt, and those oil giants are riding a massive wave of strong earnings propelled by surging crude prices. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Facebook, I mean Meta, used to be a trillion-dollar company, but shares of the newly named Meta Platforms, Inc. fell 7% last week as the original social network is facing legal challenges on all fronts and a public relations nightmare. We've seen name changes before, but do they really stick, especially when your brand is as big as Facebook? Alphabet used to be called Google, but it was originally called Backrub when Sergey Brin and Larry Page created it in a garage in Silicon Valley. Philip Morris changed its name to Altria in 2001 to purge the stink around cigarette smoke. Kentucky Fried Chicken changed its name to KFC in 1991. Was it because of a trademark issue with the great state of Kentucky? Or was it chicken, not exactly chicken? Now who's responsible? I say who's responsible for this unwarranted attack on my person? Take it easy, Foghorn. You're a rooster. Dotson changed its name to Nissan back in 1981. That worked out all right, but Dotson is kind of retro cool today. And Yahoo? Well, that used to be called Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web when Jerry Yang founded it back in 1995. Then it became part of AOL, then Verizon, and now it's in private equity hands, and who knows what they'll call it by the time they're done with it. Let's play some number games. The scores on the doors this year, so far, Bitcoin is up 110%, oil 70%, commodities 52%, stocks 16.6%, the US dollar up 4.3%, high yield bonds 1.6%, cash 0, zip, 
Nilch, nada. Investment grade bonds down 2.2%. Gold down 5%. Government bonds down 6% on course for their worst year since 1985. How are things at home? U.S. housing prices jumped 19.7% year-over-year in August. That trounces the highest gains during the 2004-2006 housing bubble when the biggest year-over-year gain was 17%. We're seeing all-time highs for housing prices in cities, including Dallas, Denver, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Where's the money flowing? Well, despite those record highs, $79.7 billion flew into cash last week, the largest inflow since April of 2020. Still, $28.1 billion went into equities, while only $8.7 billion went into bonds. $2.8 billion went into tips, those Treasury inflation-protected securities, the biggest inflows in three months. A little inflation hedge happening there, perhaps. How about stock buybacks? How about a trillion dollars worth authorized so far this year? That's a record, and companies are scooping up their own equity with both hands. They may have dodged a hike to the corporate tax rate in the U.S. for now, according to the latest negotiations in Washington, but the drumbeat for raising taxes on U.S. companies has not faded. Let's get set up for the week ahead. Earnings keep marching on, and this week we'll get reports from some of the largest oil and gas companies in the U.S., including Marathon Oil, ConocoPhillips, and Diamondback Energy, as well as a few solar companies. Though tropical storms like Hurricane Ida disrupted operations for many, oil producers are riding high on rising prices and limited inventories. A global shortage has been pushing the price of oil to seven-year highs, and that's good for big oil's bottom lines. Lyft is expected to post its quarterly earnings report on Tuesday and Uber on Thursday. Though Uber is not expected to post a profit this quarter amid higher fuel prices and a shortage of drivers, both Uber and Lyft are benefiting from delivery revenues on online orders. Last quarter, Uber said that about half of its revenue now comes from its delivery services like Uber Eats. Ride volumes are rising and so are surge prices if you hadn't noticed. Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve is gathering for a two-day meeting that starts on Tuesday, and it's time to talk about tapering. The Fed said it would start reducing the pace of its $120 billion a month in bond purchases in November, and here we are. How much and for how long is what we want to know, and what about inflation? It doesn't feel transitory if you're feeding a family and filling up the truck. And while we're at it, what's the plan again for raising interest rates? That was supposed to be a 2023 thing, but the dot plot is telling a different tale. The quasi-histogram of FOMC members' projections for interest rates has been indicating rate rises in 2022. That's coming right up. Did more dots fall into that part of the plot? If rate hikes are coming sooner than expected, stocks might start to look a little more expensive. On the IPO horizon, Allbirds is going public this week, and it looks to cash in on its reputation as a sustainable source of fashionable footwear and apparel. The shoemaker is expecting to raise $220 million to help fund growth, and it could be valued as high as $2 billion if all goes as planned. Keep in mind, this little chick only posted third quarter revenue of around $62 million and losses topping $15 million in the most recent quarter. And climate change is on the menu in Europe as world leaders have gathered for COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. Expect to hear a lot about energy transition from fossil fuels, the role of the private sector in decarbonization, green free trade, and climate funds all aimed at halting the rapidly warming temperatures on the planet. Policymakers are hoping to come out of Scotland with stronger emissions reductions targets, more support for nations struggling to adapt to climate change, and more climate financing for developing countries. On Sunday, global leaders in Glasgow reaffirmed their commitment to the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which aims to limit global warming to well below 2, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius, 
over the next decade. You hear that? I have a Pavlovian response every time I hear that music at 6.30 p.m. on the East Coast. It tells me that it's time for my supper of business and economic news that I know is going to make me smarter and fill my soul. It tells me that it's time for Marketplace, and that means it's time for Kai Rizdal. It's not just me who has this response. 14 million people a week tune in to hear Kai and the cast of Marketplace reporters and editors who break down the day in business like no one else can. Smart, savvy, funny, and essential. It's business news programming the way it should be. Not a horse race, not a stock picking bonanza, but clean, clear reporting that makes us smarter. Speaking of smart, we've got Kai Rizdal on the Express this week, and it is a real treat. Welcome to the Express, Kai. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm a fanboy, but I'll try to keep it cool. <laughs> that's, that's all right, man. It's only about when people stop saying that. I know. Well, I'm trying to control myself. I've been excited about this interview for a long time, but you've been the host of Marketplace since 2005. You've had that terrific spinoff podcast, Make Me Smart with Molly Wood. You have so much going on in that ecosystem. Do you still get excited for every broadcast every evening? The best half hour of my day, bar none, and I, I truly mean this, is that time at two o'clock LA time when the gong goes off and I get to start the show. And look, as you said, I've been doing this now 16 years. And it still happens. It's great. I love it. And hopefully that shows up. That's cool. It does show up. You have such a passion for it. Obviously a loyal listener base. And I think it's the greatest job in business news. So congratulations to you. You're, you've made it as far as I'm concerned. Like me, Kai, you've seen more than a few economic and market cycles, but what has surprised you most about the last 18 months? Oh man. So two things. One, how fast it happened, how fast we absolutely fell off the table in, in March and April of last year. That was just stunning, not just for me, but everybody. The other one I think is, is how long it is lasting. Yes, we're having a recovery and yes, we're gaining jobs and yes, all of that stuff. But the virus is still in charge and we're heading into winter. There's Delta and all of that. It's just, it's going to be here for a long time. And I think we need to brace ourselves for that. I think you're right. But it is incredible how extreme things have been, right? The, the drop in the economy, the drop in the market, the recovery in the stock market, the slow stutter starts of the, of the economy. But everything feels compressed. These meme stocks, crypto, things are moving so quickly and so fast. I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from your listeners just like us, and they are smart just like ours, but what's the most consistent feedback you've been getting from your 14 million weekly listeners every week during this part of the of the recovery, so to speak? I guess a couple of things. First of all, it's, it's 14 million for the whole marketplace portfolio. That's me and David and Molly on tech and David in the morning. So, but we're, we're proud of that number. It's, it's a good solid number and we enjoy the hell out of our listeners. I think the thing I hear most is I hear a lot of things because I'm pretty active on Twitter. A couple of things. Number one, the dysfunction of politics in our economy and what a challenge that is. You have to look no farther than the debt limit debacle that we are going through and we'll go through again on December the 3rd. The dysfunction in helping people at the end of this recession and pandemic-induced challenges that we're having because, look, the government, you have to give them credit. They were on it early with trillions of dollars, but now they've decided they're done and that's kind of a problem. And then I guess the other thing I hear from listeners all the time, and, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but there is a deep appreciation for that thing you mentioned at the very beginning, talking with them, not at them about these things that they have to understand. Because if you don't understand what happens in this economy, it will bite you in the rear end. And you don't have to look too much farther than the securitization of everything leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, 
to understand what happens when Wall Street and the banking and the financial system just do whatever they want and nobody's paying attention. You're absolutely right. So that educational component, whether it's financial literacy, understanding how the economy works, investing, education, all of that, that's what keeps us in business. But it's so critical at a time like now. But you're so good about bringing real people onto your program, small business owners, farmers, members of the military. How important is it to hear that real feel from your listeners? Those are the most important interviews I do. Look, we can call the Treasury Secretary and get her on the phone. We can call the head of the National Economic Council and talk to the White House and members of Congress. And that's great. And we should because part of the job that we have is to hold them accountable for their policy actions. But it is more relevant, I think, to the average listener to Marketplace that I get on the phone every now and then with Alana Furco, who manages the Butte Plaza Mall in, in Butte, Montana, or our guy who runs the barge company in Vicksburg, Mississippi, or the woman who runs the steel company in Delaware, Pennsylvania, because they are so much closer to the actual economy, right? That what they are experiencing matters. It does not matter what the headlines say. If you are not experiencing something in your actual economy, it just doesn't matter. And so we try to bring the program to that level. You're so good about that. And their stories, you're right, are the ones that matter. That's the real feel. Numbers are the numbers. A lot of the time, they're rear view mirror numbers, especially when we look at something like jobs or home sales and and things of that nature. But how am I doing in my small business? Can I pay my employees? Can I afford to hire more? Can I find people to hire? All of those things are the things that real people feel on a daily basis. And that's why I know you do the stock market as here are the numbers, because that's not it either. And you've been saying, you've been saying forever, but really for the last year and a half, the stock market and the economy are not the same. We know that obviously, but why do you think you have to keep saying that? Oh God, because people look at the stock market and they say, hey, look, the Dow Industrials is at or near record highs and it's been going straight up since March of 2009, right? That's the S&P 500 low after the financial crisis. And Look, it's not like it doesn't matter, the stock market, right? Because there are pensions and there is the wealth effect and all of that stuff. But now, especially, you can make a case that the stock market is detached from the actual economy. The stock market is detached from the income inequality that we're feeling. The stock market is detached from us being 5 million jobs down from where we were a year and a half ago. The stock market is detached from wages having been stuck for 20 years until you know, a year ago, they started climbing again. It's a handy signpost. It's an interesting data point, but it's only one. And you have to take it as only a single element of what's going on out there. A hundred percent. And especially when you see manias and we see them in and out of every single cycle, call it tulips, internet stocks, sock puppets, crypto, cannabis, name the area you're going to have your mania. But when you do have these extremes in those meme stocks and some of those other areas, it does feel like not only is it detached, it's in a completely different galaxy. Yeah, totally. And you have to, you have to look at the whole picture. You just do. So in addition to being the host of Marketplace, you're also the senior editor. So you're part of that show construction. I know you and your team work really hard on putting these shows together, but take us inside the rundown on a day, any given day where you're starting to put together the pieces and you know you have some news, you have some market news, but you also have these great reports. Give us an inside look at the Marketplace rundown. So the show is half an hour, 28 minutes and 45 seconds by the rundown, of which once you take out time for interstitial music and underwriting credits and a a station break in the middle, it runs a minute. We've got about 22 minutes of content every single day. And my production staff, led by the executive producer who's been with the program now for five or six years, tries to bank enough stuff, get enough features and interviews in the can so that when we walk in to our 6.15 Los Angeles time in the morning editorial meeting, we've got anywhere from eight to 12 minutes to fill same day. So we have a meeting with the reporters who were on the daily spot board, you know, the news spot. 
have a meeting with them and their editors at 6.15 in the morning. We bat around ideas. The reporters make pitches. Nancy Fergali, my executive producer, and I decide how we want the show to sound. We, we pick the stories. They go off and report. I go off and work on interviews, do interview prep. I've got a couple of feature stories that I'm working on for myself with some other producers. And then about noon or so, LA time, I sit down and I write the show. Every word that you hear on the program that comes out of my mouth, it comes out of my word processor, my pen, if you will. And I think that's one of the differentiators for this program, right? I mean, a lot of other programs in public radio, news magazines, anchors and hosts don't write their own stuff. And so you can hear that, I believe. I sit down, I write the show about noon. I work from the bottom up. I take the lead, the introduction to the first feature. I craft that for a little while. Then I work my way up the rundown until about quarter to two, 10 minutes to two, depending on how inspired I am. I'm writing the open to the show, the first words the listener hears. And I don't know why I do it that way. I've thought about it a lot. And I think what I've come down to is this. The first words that come out of my mouth are the most important part of the program. Not because they're me, but because they're what make people say, all right, yeah, I'm going to stick around for that. And I write it last because in my mind, I'm warmed up. I've been writing for an hour and a half. I'm good to go. I've got a grip on what's in the program and I can set it up. And then at two o'clock, I go into the studio and we put it on the air. It doesn't sound like you wrote it because it sounds so natural, but I know doing this podcast every week, it is all about the writing and the crafting and the and the stacking. And you're right, those first words are key, but they're always a good hook. So you guys do a great job with that. Kai, you served in the Navy for eight years and as an officer in the Pentagon. How did your career in the military help you for what you do today? So look, it can be scary the first time that on-air light goes on. It can be terrifying, right? The first time you're on a live radio, it's challenging. And I think the discipline and the faith in training that you get in naval aviation, I I flew E2C Hawkeyes up the USS Theodore Roosevelt during my service in the military. The training and the respect for process that you get really helps you out. I mean, by the time I've been doing this a long time, so it doesn't really phase me anymore. But once you get past that, oh my God, the microphone's live, then you just got to fall back on your training and what you've been doing. And, And that I think is where all of my success is grounded, right? That discipline and self-confidence that you get in military service. I, I, I truly believe that. It also gives you a sensitivity to folks who are in the military, the men and women serving in our armed forces and what happens after them. You do a lot of stories on that and you address those folks who are so critical and so important, but often not the first people you hear about on a, on a regular newscast. Yeah, I think the deal actually is this. One of the fundamental flaws in this society, and, and you know, don't at me for saying this society has flaws because we do, but one of the fundamental ones especially now, given the last 20 years of our obligations in Afghanistan and and Iraq before that, is this civilian-military divide. Most people in this country don't know a veteran, don't know an active duty service member. And I think that challenges their understanding of what service veterans provide and the dedication and the selflessness that that's involved with. And anything we can do to figure that out is is a plus, I, I believe. You're right. And think about those uh, prior generations, the ones that you and I grew up with. Everybody knew somebody in the military. Maybe they had a brother or father or an uncle or grandfather that went through you know, several generations of serving. So, so, so important to, to remember them and, and to think about where and how we can help them. Your first job, though, is as a lifeguard and you were mowing lawns as well. But if you were starting out today, Kai, what job or career would you want to pursue? You've been doing your research. You know, my first job was a lifeguard. I would have this job. I love my job. It is my job to go out and explain a ridiculously complicated apparatus to millions and millions and millions of people a week so that they can understand the economic forces that shape their lives. That's a service. It's a pleasure for me. I'd be lying if 
I didn't enjoy the performative aspects of my job, right? I get to be on stage, as it were, for a half an hour every single day, even though I'm alone in a soundproof room. But I, I love this job. I, I don't know that I'd trade it for anything. I hear you, and I kind of feel the same way. What a privilege. And, I, and I, we hear it all the time from folks that use Investopedia. I'm sure you hear it from the Marketplace listeners. Thank you for helping me through this or helping me understand this. What a great privilege. You bet. As a journalist, you're serving and you're doing the reporting. And I, I think you and I are, can thank our lucky stars. You've been so influential, Kai, to so many journalists. Who is your greatest influence or who is your greatest influence? Oh, wow. So this goes way back. And it's not actually a journalist. It's a guy by the name of Bill Peller. And he was a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force when I was working at the Pentagon. Later promoted to colonel and had a B-52 squadron. So a very quick story. I was a junior officer in the Pentagon. I was a brand new lieutenant operating in the Pentagon, which is full of colonels and generals and, and all the brass, right? And I screwed something up bad. I screwed something up really badly. And Pellerin looked really bad as a result of my screw up. And he sat me down in his office and we worked. My, uh, one of my bosses in the Pentagon said, yeah, we only work half days up here, six in the morning to six at night. But he sat me down at 6.15 in the morning and he explained what had happened and, and the fallout. And then he said, look, it's loyalty up and loyalty down. And I'm going to take this one, but I need better out of you. And I, I remember it to this day. I went out. So he, he, he gave me the talking to, and then I went out into the courtyard at the Pentagon, what they called back in the Cold War days, they called it ground zero, right? There's a cafe out there because ground zero, that's where the Russian nukes were going to come before September 11th became ground zero. And I just went out there and I sat for a long time and I just thought, so your mentor doesn't have to be in your current professional field. I mean, it's whoever you, whoever you get something from. And ideally, you know, you have a lot of those people. I totally agree. And, and those things that stick with you forever, whether they were somebody you spent a lot of time with or just a little, or those influences can last a lifetime. So great story from your past. Give me your hot take for the economy or the stock market for the next 12 months. I'm not asking you to predict stock prices or anything of that nature, but you've been watching this so closely and reporting on it every single day. What do you think may happen that may surprise us looking out 12 months from now? couple of things which, if you've been following the business and economic news, are not going to be surprising. You're going to see interest rates, the yield on the 10-year T-note. I think it's going to tick up to 2% or higher, which is going to you know, give a lot of people agita. But honestly, rates have been so low for so long. I think we're going to have prognostication is a fool's errand, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if we have a thousand point down day on the Dow sometime in the next 180 days. We're just due. We're due for a massive correction because stocks go down too. And then just more broadly in the economy, it a thousand percent depends on the Delta variant. We got to get through this winter. We got to get people their boosters. We got to get those who aren't vaccinated, somehow convince them to get vaccinated, setting aside the 15, 20% of the population that will just be vaccine hesitant structurally. And then we got to get into next spring. And then I think we have to pause and reevaluate. I think if we can tread water between now and next spring, we're doing fine. Look, gross domestic product estimates are already coming in like in the threes, which in an ordinary time would be great, but we're coming off 6.7% in Q2 and you get down to like Q3 being 3%. That's a little dicey, right? People are slowing down and consumers are going, hmm, do I really want to go to that restaurant? Do I really want to buy that plane ticket? Do I really want to go out and go to this bar? We do, but maybe not enough of us. Are you shocked at how resilient the consumer has been? Or do you think that's a function of the fact that there was all this stimulus, extra money in the pockets for those that were able to keep their jobs or not, and we're just so pent up to spend given that we couldn't for so long? I think the stimulus and the let's not call it stimulus, right? Let's call it relief money. Uh, I think the relief money was critical. 
It was existential for this economy, and it was the best thing the Congress has done in many, many a year. That said, I am constantly amazed at the resilience of the American consumer, truly, because as we know, right, spending by or on behalf of consumers account for 70% of all economic activity in this country. And I don't understand how we're doing it, right? Especially with the income and wealth gap that we have, right? Yes, the upper, you know, the 4%, well, two, 3% of this economy are spending and spending and spending because they've got it. But there's a huge chunk of this economy that is still paycheck to paycheck, that is still trying to figure out the mortgage, that is still looking for a better job to pay something better than $15 an hour. And yet they still go out and spend within their means mostly, right? Household and consumer debt is down within their means mostly. And it's, it's just, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. I feel the same way. You're right. But debt has not become an issue. Not yet anyway, though. If you look at those credit card numbers month to month, where the spending is and the credit card debt and mortgage debt, they are starting to creep a little bit. Let me ask you this. And I've had, we have a lot of economists and strategists on the show as well. But this notion that the Federal Reserve is going to be there no matter what. You interview Fed governors and presidents all the time. This notion that they can't but save the economy, save the market when things get dicey. Do you think we're in that sort of a moral predicament right now? Yeah, I think we kind of are. And look, they have to do it because in every instance, except this pandemic, fiscal policymakers, that is to say lawmakers in the White House have said, yeah, we're only going to do, you know, whatever Obama's stimulus was, $700 billion, when the price tag really should have been double that anyway. I think the Fed has put itself in the position of bailing out the politicians in this economy. And that becomes its own challenge because now what you're seeing is everybody knows the Fed has to start pulling back. Everybody knows it. But the Fed also knows that if it pulls back too far, too fast, right? Pulls back on QE, raises rates. Those two are not you know, synonymous. In the absence of continued fiscal support, that becomes really macroeconomically challenging. And so he's trying to thread a needle. And oh, by the way, Jay Powell is trying to keep his job too. Right. More than one challenge going on at the Fed, irrespective of some of the other headlines that have come out lately. You know, Investopedia is a, a site built on investing terms. You may have come through every once in a while to look something up for the show. What's your favorite investing or finance term, Kai, and why? Oh, man. Wow. That's, re- that's an interesting question because I try really, really hard to stay away from the jargon because I don't think it does anybody any good. I'll go with something really basic that I think everybody listening to this podcast is going to know. And maybe it's because it's the only one I can think of. PCE, the way the Fed measures inflation, personal consumption expenditures, doesn't get enough press, is not well enough understood, but it's really critical because that's how Jay Powell and Mary Daly and Raphael Bostic and all the rest of them measure what's going on in this economy. Kai, we're such big fans. We really appreciate you joining The Express. Would you do us a favor and sign out for us, please? (laughs) Of course. Here we go. I'm Kyle Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Steve in Nicholasville, Kentucky. That's beautiful bluegrass and thoroughbred country out there. Steve suggests stock warrants this week, and we like that term given the renewed interest in SPACs of late. Let's start with stock warrants for a minute, and according to my favorite website, a stock warrant gives the holder the right to purchase a company's stock at a specific price and at a specific date. A stock warrant is issued directly by the company concerned. When an investor exercises a stock warrant, the shares that fulfill the obligation are not received from another investor, but directly from the company. 
Retail investor exposure to warrants has increased substantially as a result of retail investors' interest in initial public offerings of SPACs, those special purpose acquisition companies that are stealing all the headlines lately. When an investor invests in a SPAC, they typically purchase units that consist of shares and warrants, and in some cases, the investor may receive a fraction of a warrant. The terms of the warrants vary greatly across different SPACs, so investors need to understand the terms of the specific warrants in which they are considering investing, as well as the risks associated with those speculative securities. If you miss the notice of redemption and fail to exercise within the given period, your warrants can become essentially worthless. You may not receive direct timely notice of warrant redemption, so make sure you're checking those company filings and setting up alerts. Good suggestion, Steve. You'll be getting a pair of stylish Investopedia socks to wear on your next evening out at Daddy Joe's Bar and Grill in beautiful Nicholasville, Kentucky. We're going to let President Franklin Delano Roosevelt take us out again this week. Here's the president in March of 1933 with the nation still in the grips of a depression. FDR's administration had reformed the banking industry and launched the New Deal, creating dozens of government agencies and work programs to put American workers back to work. Unemployment was at 24.9%, and FDR wanted to prime the pump and get Americans to spend again. He's not the only president to make that request of the American people. Here's FDR in 1933. You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem, my friends. Your problem no less than it is mine. The rest is up to us, isn't it always? Well, I've got your back this week, and I know you've got mine. We'll talk again a little further on down the line.